Now, I don't know who said this, but I love this quote. Marriage does not happen on some romantic balcony. Marriage happens on a spiritual battlefield. That's the reality. I think we have this, I know that as a, as a teenager and as a young adult, I was so in love with the concept of love. The problem was I didn't have a clue what love actually was. <laughs> I had this romanticized view of love. And uh, the reality is love is not easy. The Christian life is not easy. Uh, God's word tells us we will have trials, we'll experience hardship, we'll experience temptation. And the truth is, overall, it seems like in almost every other area of life, we're, we're generally willing to accept that things are going to be tough, things are going to be hard. But for some reason, with marriage, uh, that seems to be an exception. Our default thinking seems to be that we should not have to work hard at marriage and, and that it should just come naturally, it should just happen right? Um, We approach marriage sometimes as an escape from our family, or we approach marriage with totally unrealistic expectations uh, for for ourselves or for our spouses. And so we just, what we need is a healthy dose of reality and, and God's truth to shake us out of our rut. We have to be willing to work at marriage. We have to be willing to work on ourselves. We have to be willing to let God shape us and change us and to examine ourselves and embrace the things that we need to change. So just a little review from last week uh, on our cultural confusion, which just adds to the, the problem that we experience here, right, is the lie that we have bought into is that our salvation, our liberation and freedom will come through sex. Remember that the lie is that men and women cannot be truly equal in value unless they're equal in every single other way. And that's the lie. And so... Um, So the irresponsible sexual behavior that once was primarily the domain of uh, men is an area where women must now make that their own. If we're going to be equal, they've got to... They've got to do that stuff too, right? And so sex becomes identity. And we've been seeing that since the 1960s. And the necessary consequence of all of this is gender confusion. And ultimately, we end up in the place where there's no, no gender at all. You can't say for anyone else what they are. Biology doesn't matter. It's just confusion. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb this morning because I'm fond of doing that. I love emails uh, on Mondays. Um, and I'll I, I just say that I think the whole liberation of women has been a false flag Operation. Now, if you don't know what a false flag is, it's a covert operation designed to deceive. What I, what I mean is that the true goal of the liberation was the liberation of abdicating little boys who are trapped in men's bodies. That's been the liberation. And, and in our day, I think the goal has been largely achieved. Uh, these were, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, uh, man babies who wanted the benefits for themselves that would come from four things. Easy, uncontested divorce, widespread abortion, mainstreamed pornography, and a promiscuous dating culture. And just look around. That's exactly what we have. They got what they wanted. This was not about the liberation of men, women. This is about the liberation of irresponsible men to get everything they wanted. If the early 20th century was marked by the Christian wife, I think the early 21st century is characterized by boys that can shave. That, that would be my read. And we have the gall to call this progress for women. 
So it, it may seem like into the second week here that I'm hammering hard on women, but there is a corresponding set of responsibilities for men that we have not yet unpacked. Uh, not only so, but if you know me at all, you would know that I consider the failure of men to conform to God's pattern to be far more spectacular than the failure of women. And we'll get to that. We will get to that in the next two weeks, but we're not there yet. Um, for now, I will just say once more that the Bible teaches submission of wives to their husbands and that it's a glorious thing. It's a glorious thing. Lest we forget the fall in Genesis 3, the curse as a result of a fall, those wreak havoc on marital relationships. And so the, women, the woman's greatest need, uh, it's so funny, you can sit down and we do so much premarital counseling and we'll ask this engaged couple these questions and it's universal. You dig around at this and it's just true because it's true. You say, what is the greatest need you have as a future wife? And she will say, I wanna be loved and I need to feel secure. I wanna feel secure, right? And you ask the guy, what is the greatest need that you have as a guy? And, he'll, and if, you, if you whittle it down, it's I wanna be respected. I need respect. This is the way God made us as men and women. Women's greatest need is security and love. Man's greatest need is respect. So, so then the constant daily, minute by minute decision that we all face is whether we're gonna choose faith or whether we're gonna choose fear. Are we going to walk in faith and trust God or are we going to walk in fear because my needs aren't being met and I'm not sure how this is all going to work out and I don't even know how he or she feels about me today, right? Are we going to trust God? It's it's this constant faith or fear, faith or fear. And so uh, in in the life of a woman, that fear uh, will lead her to insecurity, a place of insecurity because she's thinking, "I, I, I might not be loved, I might not be cared for, I won't have the security that I need from him and in, in, in my life. And then that uh, insecurity will lead to a place of usurping the man's role and uh, in an effort to control the, the relationship and gain the feeling of security, right? Because that's what it's about. I'm trying to gain the place where I feel secure again, but it's an illusion. It actually makes things worse when you succeed, ladies. Now, the men have this other reality because what we fear is not that we won't be loved. We fear that we'll fail. Guys fear failure. Guys fear, we're asking the question constantly, do I have what it takes to be a real dude? Am I a real dude? Have you ever seen teenage guys show off for girls? That's what's happening. They're, they're finding the most absurd ways to answer the question, am I a real dude? By doing really stupid things. And, and when guys don't have older men to step in and go, dude, you're gonna kill yourself, stop it. Like that's not how you answer the question. They keep doing that into their 40s, 50s, and 60s. <laughs> it's not pretty, okay? And so the guy's fear of failure will lead to the place of abdication. That's, that's the place of just giving up where the guy's thinking, well, if I try, I'm probably gonna fail at this, so why should I even try? And then that abdication creates space for the woman's fear to grow and continue to grow. And the cycle feeds itself until the man breaks it. And this is an uphill battle. And so we have to look at God's word. We have to go to his word to see and hear what he has to say about this. And so the Bible is essentially a book about marriage. Did you know that? The Bible is essentially a book about marriage. The Bible begins with a marriage in Genesis chapter 2. The Bible ends with the marriage in in Revelation chapter 19 and also in 21. Uh, 
Um, the, the central themes of the Bible are heavily underlined with marriage metaphors and pictures. Uh, I'll give you a few out of the Old Testament. You've got Hosea and Gomer, that relationship uh, being a parallel of God and his people Israel and they're uh, running away from him and back into adulterous relationships. You have all the talk in the prophets about Israel being adulterous and then that idea is linked to idolatry. So there's this parallel happening all through the prophets that says, uh, your idolatry and worshiping other gods is really a parallel to adultery in marriage because we have that kind of covenant relationship. And then you get people like Ruth and Boaz in the book of Ruth. Um, he's a foreshadowing of, of a type of Christ and she's a foreshadowing of the church. Boaz is that kinsman redeemer and uh, Ruth is the Gentile bride of a kinsman redeemer. I don't know if you ever noticed that she's a Gentile, but it's this picture of Jesus in the church. And Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom in Matthew 9 and, and he uses wedding speak all the time in, in John's gospel to relate to his disciples and his followers. And in the scripture, sexuality is this primary area of brokenness and sin and fallen men and women that God addresses again and again. He holds that up as being really important to him. And so the Bible is really a book that's essentially about marriage. It's essentially about marriage. And so this issue is a big deal to God's heart. It's a big deal to God. With all those realities in mind, what I want to do this morning is go back to the Ephesians text. Ephesians 5. Verses 22 to 23, we're going to read through the passage again, and then I'm going to go to 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7, which is a parallel passage, and we'll pull out some truths this morning. Uh, you can follow me along uh, in your Bible or in your YouVersion app. And so, here we go. Ephesians 5, 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now flip over just a couple of books to the right to 1 Peter chapter 3. And listen to what Peter says. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. 
But this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good, and do not fear that which is frightening. Now, we tried the Lord thing at our house. Didn't work. Didn't go over well. I don't, I don't know why. She's like, I just not, I'm not calling you Lord. Okay, moving on. This is God's perspective on marriage, right? There are two things that are happening that are the primary things that are happening. Everything else is linked to them, but is not the primary thing. The number one thing is oneness. The two are becoming one flesh. And we said this, uh, I think we talked about this in life group this week, but this is the reality of the picture of the covenant, right? Because the two are becoming one And so oneness is the goal of marriage. Oneness is the purpose of marriage. And then the close second is our sanctification. God is making you holy through your marriage. Um, So whenever a college student or young adult comes to me inevitably and the guys are like, I found the one, I found her. I'm gonna get married, I'm gonna ask her to marry me. And they're so excited and I just kind of take the air out of the system. I'm like, why do you wanna marry this girl? And most of the guys are like, well, she's pretty. And And she's pretty. And I don't know if I have any other answers beyond that, but she's really pretty, you know? And it's like, dude, get to know the girl, right? Like, get to know her. Spend some time with her. Because here's what you're signing up for. You're signing up to be the primary conduit of God's sanctifying grace in the life of the other person. Not the only conduit of grace, but the primary. There's no other life that is going to have more impact and influence on that person, your spouse or future spouse, than you will. And there's no other person that's going to have more impact on you than that person. That's number one. Influence, conduit of grace is your spouse. And that's what you're signing up for when you get married. Now, close second is kids. (laughs) Have some kids. Wiping baby bottoms is so sanctifying. Dude, I'm telling you, it is. And that one's for free, right? But it is so sanctifying. Um, but, but the question really is, what is marriage? And the answer in God's word is that marriage is a covenant union between one man and one woman for life. That's why the vows in the, in the wedding service, if you've if you got a good pastor giving you good vows, says, till death do us part, Because that's the way that the marriage covenant is broken through the death of one or both people. And and so this is how God defines it. And because God made marriage, he gets to decide how to define it. We don't get to decide how to define it. We don't have the freedom to redefine that which God has made. And so let me just give you a quick breakdown. There are three things that we confuse when we talk about marriage. We confuse contracts with commitments with covenants. And they're all C words, so I can understand why the confusion. There's another C word. I just made it worse, didn't I? Oh, now we got four C words. Contract. Contract is an agreement between two or more parties, especially one that is written, and usually a contract is enforceable by law, right? You sign a contract, and it's enforceable by law. A commitment is a little different. A commitment is the state of being emotionally bound to another person or persons. I, I, I made a commitment to you because I care about you. I made a commitment to you because you need me. That's, that's an emotional bond that's made between two or more people. So there's contract, commitment, and then there's this thing called covenant. Covenant is something altogether different. It's altogether different. A, a contract, when you're going to sign that contract, you're buying a house, you're buying a car, you, whatever it is, um, you, we sign our name on the bottom line, right? On the, on the dotted line, we sign our name. And so that contract is in my name. 
A covenant, on the other hand, made between two individuals, it brings God into the equation. Covenant brings God into the mix. And so there's a vow or an oath, not in my name, but in God's name. Because he's part of that reality. That's when a, a person takes a vow or oath, even in today's society, though it doesn't really mean much, say, so help me, me. No, it's not what we say. We say, so help me, God. Because that's, that's the, the depth of the importance of this relationship, right? So a covenant brings God into that equation. A contract may be legally binding to the laws of man, but a covenant is binding according to God's law. It has eternal connotations, and it ends when one or both parties stop breathing, Okay, that's when the covenant ends. It, it has eternal connotations. It's a, con- a contract is an exchange of property or, or in the form of goods and services. And so we would say, well, that's mine in a contract and this is yours and this is how we're gonna divide this and this part belongs to me. That's contract. Covenant is not calling for the exchange of goods and services. Covenant calls for the exchange of persons. And so in a covenant arrangement, we say, I am yours and you are mine. That's covenant. You see, you guys see the difference? That's a big difference, right? This is the context of this covenant between the husband and the wife. And scripture gives commands. God gives commands in the context of that covenant union. Here in 1 Peter 3, the first thing he says is, wives, be subject to your husbands. Look at verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. This is the dreaded S word again. It's submission. Submission. Let me tell you some things that submission does not mean, okay? So see, hear me clearly. Submission does not mean putting your husband in the place of Jesus. Don't do that to him. He can't be that. Submission does not mean giving up independent thought or the ability to hear God for yourself. Submission does not mean giving up efforts to give input and influence into your marriage, ladies. Submission does not mean that you're less intelligent, less competent, fearful, or timid. Submission is not inconsistent with the equality that we have in Jesus Christ. Submission is an inner quality of gentleness that affirms the leadership of the husband in that covenant arrangement. Submission is three things. Submission is personal. It's personal. You're not going to find in the text anywhere in Scripture where God says, I want you to be this or do this. But that's all conditional on whether this person is this or does that. It just doesn't work. It's always to you, the person. It's on you, the person, to receive and and, and embrace what God has called you to do. So you won't find admonitions to the wife to tell her husband to step up his leadership. Wives, make sure you tell your husbands five times this week, be the leader I want you to be. It's not there. Right? You won't find in scripture uh, an admonition to husbands to tell the wives that they have to submit. It's just not there. Right? God doesn't want a third party in the way of his relationship with you. So he's telling you directly. Each individual must personally work on themselves before God in humble obedience. Submission is personal. Submission is spiritual. Remember in Ephesians 5, the chapter earlier, uh, before we got to this stuff in verse 18, it's not really not that far back. Uh, one of the things that uh, God says through Paul is that what he wants for his people, the, the church, is to be being continually filled with the Holy Spirit. 
right? He wants us to not just yesterday, not just the day we came to Christ, not just when there was that crisis moment two years ago, but every day be being continually filled with the Holy Spirit. And here's the deal. I don't know why. uh, It it just doesn't make any sense for anybody to think about submitting to another person, particularly their husband, ladies, if you're not being filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a spiritual reality. It's personal to you, and it's spiritual, and then it's freeing. It's freeing. God did not give us the concept of submission to put us in prison, but to set us free. To set us free. Ladies, Listen, you no longer have to strive or contend for control and headship in your marriage. You have been freed from having to strive for headship. Christ calls you to freedom from that fight. You don't have to fight. And speaking of fights, look at the rest of verse one. So that even if some do not obey the word, you got a bad husband, you got a, you got a bum, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Here's the next point. No words are needed. No guy shouted amen. Good for you, fellas. That's, that's good. Nobody's going home to get a black eye today. That's, um, women do typically use more words per day than men. Men like to grunt and nod. We have a system of grunts and clicks and, and we're, we're content with that. We're content. Yeah, see? Now, there have been some recent studies in, in the Western culture that are attempting to debunk the notion that women talk more. So, no, actually, it's about the same. And I'm like, you know what? You're pulling dudes out of the women's studies department to, to survey them to make your data work. That's not, this is not indicative of men in the culture, right? Guys talk less. We talk less. Remember, culture says, well, we can't actually be different. Well, we are different. We are different. Right? The University of Maryland just this last month and their most recent study found that women average 20 to 21,000 words every day. The average male uses about 7,000. That's one third of the words that women use. And even for some of you dudes in the room, you're like, 7,000 is a lot of words. I think maybe I clear like 528, right? You thought it, but you didn't say it because you're like, I can't use up my quota, right? So, Hold on to that scenario. Women, women are more verbal. Women feel the compulsion to verbalize far more than men do. They just have more words to get out than men do. So imagine this situation. Imagine this scenario. Can you think of a situation more scary and difficult than being married to a husband who does not know, care about, or submit to Jesus? That would be terrifying. I, I, just, I took some time this week and I tried to just put myself in that place of going, what would that be like for a woman? To be married to a dude who didn't care about Jesus, wasn't submitted to Jesus, didn't know Jesus. And I've seen these situations in church where a, a, a wife and a mom will come to know Jesus, uh, usually through a women's ministry or mops or some ministry in the church, and she'll just be so in, passionate about Jesus and she wants her kids to know Jesus and so she's trying to get them involved. And the husband's just at home and he's totally disengaged, 100% uninterested in anything that they're doing regarding Jesus. He's not leading them, he doesn't care, he's not uh, pouring into their lives in any way whatsoever. And those are the best case scenarios. Sometimes you get a man who's hostile towards the things of Jesus. I've seen it. 
It's got to be scary and overwhelming for a wife who has come to faith. And so it seems like the default would be to constantly be searching for all the right words to try to say to convince him or convict him or get him to just, if I just say it enough, he'll, it'll pop in his head and he'll come to Christ, right? And, and Peter says, no, no, don't do that. Don't do that. You have a place of submission, which is actually a place of power and influence. And it's a place that's being content with not having to have all the authority. And if you live a life that is pleasing to God and your, your, your heart and your character and your, your obedience is submitted to him, you can win your husband without ever having to say a word. That's the power. That's the power that's available. Let me, let me just throw a couple more scriptures at you. Hebrews 13, just to support this. Hebrews 13, 17. Uh, it says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Anybody who's in a position of authority over you, uh, scripture says, obey that person and submit to them for they have been appointed to keep watch over your souls as those who have to give an account to God. Let them do that with joy and not with groaning for that's of no advantage to you. I love how direct Hebrews is. Let them lead with joy and not groaning. Ladies, do not be a source of groaning for your husbands. Okay, let them lead with joy as those who have to give an account to God. It's not to your advantage to, to cause groaning in your leadership over you. It doesn't help you. You're not gaining anything by that. Titus, Paul says to Titus in Titus 2, he says, older women in the church are to be reverent in their behavior, not slanderers. So they don't sit around talking about everybody else all day, right? And he says, they're not slaves to much wine, okay? They're to teach what is good. And older women are to train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, right? And, and, and so to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and here it is again, submissive to their own husbands. And then, and then he says this. This is crazy. Listen to this. So older women are to teach younger women. One of the things they have to teach them is to be submissive to their own husbands so that the word of God would not be blasphemed. There is a reality in the culture watching the, the marriages of those people who call themselves Christ followers and when it's not the way that God says it's supposed to be, th- there is a reality where God's word is blasphemed. It's like... What's the difference? What's the difference? They claim they got Jesus and, and all this and the power of the Holy Spirit and their marriage is not any different than my marriage. They fight like cats and dogs. The word of God not be blasphemed. Peter goes on here in 1 Peter 3. Look at verse 3. He says, ladies, don't let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So let's talk about that adorning, that beauty for just a minute, because this issue of beauty is tangled up in this identity crisis for women. It's, we've been so deceived in our culture. Whether you're a single, uh, single lady, a wife, mother, daughter, it's all the same issue here for you. Uh, Peter says, do not let your adorning, let the source of your beauty be outward only. Now, I know that the word only is not in the text, but it's strongly implied. And here's how you know that. Because this is not a prohibition on being beautiful. Check the text. If it were a blanket prohibition on the things that Peter lists, ladies, you'd all have to run around naked because it's the don't put any clothes on. 
Clearly, that's not what Peter intends. Okay, can we just agree? That's not helpful to anyone. Okay, that's not what he intends. So this is not a prohibition against these things. Scripture is telling you, ladies, that your beauty and your loveliness, the very basis of what defines the feminine, is not all about the outward. It's not all about the outward you. Your identity is not those things. The way your hair looks, how much, the perfect makeup, the right jewelry, the right clothes, that's not the source of your beauty. Your security is not to be found in those realities. Peter is contrasting two things in this passage, your external appearance and the character of your heart. It's the hidden person of the heart that's the source of beauty in God's sight. It's the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Think about that word, imperishable. It doesn't perish. It doesn't go away. It doesn't die out. It doesn't fade uh, like, like, your, like the laugh lines get worse. And, and, the, and things start to sag. I was laughing with somebody yesterday. I was like, man, you got a big beard. I'm like, yes, to hide the fact that I don't have a chin. And, and the, 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 all the stuff here is starting to droop, right? It's just like we're just laughing about how that happens. It just ha- your, your body, we're, we're wasting away. What does Paul say? But inwardly we're being renewed by, day by day. But the, the body is just it's, it's dying. It's dying. And so um, your identity is not these things. It's imperishable. The beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit is imperishable. It doesn't fade. It doesn't die out. He says it's gentle. That means it's not demanding, It doesn't strike out in fear, in moments of insecurity. It's a gentle spirit. And then then he says it's a quiet spirit. It's a spirit that knows that even when your husband won't listen to you, Jesus will. It's a spirit that knows that and rests in that reality. And and then what happens is, ladies, as as you cultivate that response of going, my husband is such a bonehead and he's not listening to me right now. Jesus, help me. I know that you hear me when I pray to you. That goes from being a response to your boneheaded husband (laughs) to being the default in everything to where the first impulse of your heart is to go, Jesus, hear my heart. And you're a person who's a person at peace because you're constantly going to the feet of Jesus. Think about this, this idea of beauty, right? Think of all the ways that the world tells women to be beautiful. Everything that you see in advertising, everything you hear on the radio, everything on the internet is geared to tell you that there are two things that you have to have, ladies, if you're gonna be beautiful. Number one, it's all about the external. It's all about the external. You gotta look just right all the time. You got to have the perfect body type, the perfect face, perfect hair, perfect clothes all the time. And then number two is seize power for yourself, right? Well, everybody that's being praised right now in the culture are women who are seizing power for themselves. That's beautiful. She sees power for herself. It's like, okay, those two things, the external focus and the seizing power are antithetical to what Jesus is saying in his word, They're diametrically opposed to what the text says. Now, again, this passage is not forbidding external beauty or external adorning. In fact, as a husband, I recommend, ladies, for the sake of your husbands who are wired visually, look nice, okay? Look nice. And if you don't know what that means for your husband, ask him. Ask him. He will tell you. He's going to use some of those 7,000 words to say, yeah, oh, 
and there'll be some grunts, but it'll be informative, right? It'll be good. What is the verse saying? Your identity is not in your physical appearance. Yes, wear jewelry, do your hair, wear pretty, modest clothes, but know and embrace that your security and acceptance is not found in those things. It's not found in those things. And, and, and if you go back for just a moment, ladies, to the place of being a little girl, this is the question every little girl is asking, right? Am I lovely? Am I beautiful? I, didn't, I, I knew that, and then we had, we had two boys, had Noah and then Ethan, and they just came right into the world broad-shouldered, ready to wrestle. It's like, yeah, boys, ah. And then we had Abigail, and she was this slender-shouldered little thing that was different, and I was struck by how different she was from the first breath. And, and then I had this object lesson when she was about two, and some people gave us a bag of hand-me-down clothes for her, and in the bag was this rain slicker that was two sizes too big, but it was so cute. It was covered as white, and it was covered in blue, big blue flowers. It had a little hood, and so she, we, we had cultivated this reality, and uh, um, it doesn't happen as much today. Uh, we try to see if we can get this back, but she would go get dressed for the day. Mommy would help her pick out her clothes, and then she would come to Daddy for approval on what she was wearing. That's a good pattern to establish with girls' dads. Really good. Be very affirming of your daughter. Oh, no, she appeared in the back. I'm going to have to keep it short. And so she, she, uh, she was trying on these clothes, and I was sitting there in the bedroom. I had a desk in, in the bedroom, and I was working on the computer. And I would look up when she'd appear in the door and say, Oh, Abby, you look so pretty in that outfit. Oh, you look so beautiful. And she, oh, she'd toddle off to go get the next one, right? And she'd come back. And then and she came in with this rain slicker on with the hood up, and it was just swallowing her. It was the cutest little, she was like Paddington Bear with no fur. It was just the cutest little thing. And she showed up in the doorway, and I looked up, and it was so cute that I laughed. I laughed out loud. I was like, <laughs> to which she was greatly offended. And her eyes began to do that, the moistening, the immediate moistening. And then there's so much moisture that the tears begin to form on the tops of the bottom eyelids and start to trickle down. And the lips swole and started to tremble just a little bit. And she ran away. And I was like, what just happened? What just happened? She was offended Right? Because she wasn't getting the acceptance and the love that she was accustomed to from her dad. It was just this moment where I was like, this is a different creature. This is a different creature. I've got to adjust everything in my brain and my heart to account for the difference in this little person and how different she is from her brothers. It was a, it was a powerful lesson for me. The question in the heart of every little girl is, am I lovely? Am I beautiful? And our culture spends billions of dollars to convince them and you that the answer to the question is purely external. It's purely external. And it's a lie straight from the pit of hell. It's a lie. Here's the example Peter gives. He gives the example of Sarah. So we have an actual person. We have the wife of Abraham. Now, if Abraham's the father of faith, Sarah's the mother of godly wives, right? Sarah's the example given by Peter to wives of someone who's trusting God to work through the man despite his track record, okay? This is what the phrase is, if you do that which is frightening, means. So Peter's point here is that submission in the home is beautiful and right and God-pleasing and ladies at times terrifying, it's terrifying. And you are the daughters of Sarah if you do what is right and do not give way to 
fear. It's about the inward. It's about doing the frightening thing. And Genesis 3, we talked about last week, explains why it's so frightening. Because the track record of male headship in the home was run into the ditch before the first lap was even completed. Okay? We have run it into the ditch, and we continue to run it into the ditch. And all women being daughters of Eve, I can borrow that phrase from Aslan, uh, in their flesh fundamentally fear the leadership of the men they marry. They fundamentally fear the leadership of the men that they marry. And it's only by the spirit of God in you that that is overcome. So consider the example Peter gives in Sarah, the wife of Abraham, right? He's the father of those who are faithful. We know Abraham left his homeland in faith when God said, I want you to go and get up and go to a place that I will show you. In other words, you don't know where you're going. You're just going. And Abraham said, yes, Lord, I'll go in faith. And he did, and he journeyed. We know uh, later in life, Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac, his son, the son of the promise on Mount Moriah, right? God said, go sacrifice him. And Abraham said, yes, Lord, I will do what you say. And you go, man, God, God just worked in the heart of Abraham. What a faithful, uh, spirit-filled, God-blessed leader. Should be easy for Sarah to follow his leadership, right? But then you go, wait a minute. I remember two occasions where Abraham lied about being married to Sarah while they were in foreign lands, right? Because uh, they were in potentially dangerous places and he did it not to protect Sarah, but to protect himself. In fact, he gets into trouble twice because God has to directly intervene before Pharaoh and this other leader take Sarah into their harem. And God says, don't touch her. So, whoa, I didn't know. I didn't know. God says, I know you didn't know. That's why I didn't kill you. Don't touch her. And so Abraham's like, dude, what are you doing? What are you doing? We know Abraham's leadership was not stellar. When Sarah came and said, you know, we're not having a kid. You should probably go sleep with Hagar. It's like, huh, good plan, honey. Dude, really? Okay, right? And, and from that bad decision comes things that impact our geopolitical situation even today, right? Abraham was not perfect. Abraham was not always a good leader. But Sarah trusted God in him to work through him. And because of that, she was able to submit to him, right? This is the example. Not a perfect leader, but a wife who's willing to trust God to work through him. And this is what it means to be a daughter of Sarah, is ultimately you're not asked to trust your husband. God is asking you to trust him to work through your husband. That's a difference. I hope that will help you. And so what we do with that is, is we, we say, well, the God who gives us our commands and, and thing, things that he says to us is the same God who designed us and created us. And so his commands are good and right and true. So as wives who seek to live out these principles, ladies, you are overcoming sin when you walk in obedience. You're growing in your new nature in Christ. And when it comes to women's liberation, this is the only liberation that matters. Jesus said in John 14, 21, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. If you love me, if you really love me, Jesus said, you'll obey me. So our demonstration to the Lord that we truly love him is that we seek to obey the commands that he has given us. And God gives wives specific commands in the scriptures regarding their marriage relationships that they will obey if they love Jesus, ladies, your submission to your husband 
is a test of your claim whether or not you love Jesus, whether it's real or genuine or not. Just put that squarely back on your shoulders. Go back to Ephesians and Paul says this. This whole mystery is so profound and I'm, I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love your wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So the text speaks of respect as something that can be felt and something that can be demonstrated. Husbands, we, guys, we know, we can sense the attitude of our wife's hearts, can't we? We can tell when we feel respect or disrespect, even when there are no words. Ladies, we know by the tone of your voice, your attitude, your body language, whether or not you are respecting or disrespecting our leadership. Now, you choose, ladies, how you will respond and how you react to your husband every day. You make that choice. You choose to respect him or to disrespect him in the small things and in the big things. And the way that you respond to your husband over a length of time will either build him up as a great man who loves you and loves Jesus or can tear him down into a quiet, withdrawn, resentful man who doesn't even try to lead anymore. Proverbs eighteen twenty one says, life and death are in the power of the tongue. How you speak to your husband can bring life or death to him. That's why Peter says he can be one without having to say anything. You don't have to say something all the time. You may be thinking, well, my husband doesn't deserve my respect. Well, sometimes that's true. But that's why Paul says it's a great mystery, right? How a wife can, can respect her husband despite his track record. That's not easy. But your reward in this life and in heaven is great. Colossians 3, remember, talks about, Paul's talking about, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. When you're going through a hard time in your marriage and he's acting like a complete dofus, right? He, set your th- mind on things above. It, it, think about the Lord and your eternal home and the rewards that await you in heaven. Think about your kids and how your life impacts them and the generations that come after them and what you're modeling for them in that moment. There are no conditions to these commands. God does not say respect your husband as long as he He's respectable. Submit to your husband if he's a good spiritual leader. There are no conditions. And I think the passage holds for us some truths that the church is missing that we have to reclaim in this generation. With all the turmoil in our culture, as it's imploding on itself, I'm utterly convinced that Christian covenant marriage is one of the most powerful apologetics in the years to come. Oh, they can have their civil unions. They can, they can call it marriage if they want to, but when the world sees marriage is flourishing in the power of the Holy Spirit, that is the thing that's going to draw people. Anyway, what is different about you? They're not going to blaspheme the word of God because of our, marriage, our marriages are just like theirs. They're going to look and go, man, what is going on? You guys love each other. You really genuinely love each other. I can't believe that what I see in your marriage, your family, is so different. Your being here this morning accomplishes a little bit of this because none of you can say, well, I didn't know that's what the word of God said. Now you know. Now you know. The book of James says that we are to be doers of the word, not hearers only. So again, putting the burden right back on you. Right back on you. 
if you leave this place and go back into your life and your future and your marriage and do not put into practice the things that are taught here in this passage, it only comes back to the stubbornness of your own heart. And I know there's a great revulsion against this teaching in our day. I hear people all the time, I read articles all the time, say Paul is a bigoted, male chauvinist, woman hater. Peter is no better. In all actuality, can I just tell you, this is an attack on the inspiration of Scripture because these words are, are the, whole, the Holy Spirit's words. And, and so uh, back to the accusation that this passage devalues women and their role in marriage, I would simply point that nothing is more exalting than to compare wives to the bride of Christ or to use the word helper, helpmate, which is the word used for the Holy Spirit himself in the, role, uh, in, in, the, in the life of a believer. To say that the role of the wife is to be a helpmate is to put her on par with the Holy Spirit. That's not devaluing right? When a wife finds herself unable to submit for, to her husband out of fear and distrust, that's a hard place to be. But remember, fear is the opposite of faith. And all of this, all of this, these, these two weeks for you women, for you ladies, all of this is the practical outworking of what it means to be being continually filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the only way you're going to do this is to run to Jesus every day and say, please help me. I do not have the capacity to submit to my husband. He's a complete turkey. He makes bad decisions. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. That's what you gotta do. That's what you gotta do. And and I would just say this in closing. God is not impressed with tongues or signs or wonders or healings. And, And there's nothing wrong with those things. Please don't hear me wrong. There's nothing wrong with those things. I think what's more pleasing to God and what testifies more powerfully to his presence and his power and his spirit filling a married person's life is this, a wife submitting to her husband with joy. That's a testimony of God's power. If someone came to me and claimed that they could heal the sick with a word and make angels appear on command, I would still contend that a healthy marriage filled with deference to the other spouse, serving one another, selflessly loving, is a far more powerful testimony of the working of God than whatever supernatural thing you can conjure up. Seeing that happen in the lives of two fallen people is a much greater testimony of God's work. It's awesome to see. And may he pour out his grace on every one of you today. Lord Jesus, help us. Help us to take this into our hearts. It would not just be words that the pastor spoke today, but it'd be your words penetrating deep into our souls. I pray for every wife and future wife in the room, that though this is hard, though everything in their flesh rises up against these words, and, and, and even the sound of my voice as I say these words, that your spirit would prevail and your spirit would, would uh, sanctify and shape and, and love and uh, move them into the place of embracing your design for marriage. By your grace, it's only by your grace, only by the power of your spirit that these things are possible. So Lord, we submit to you today. We love you. Uh, We ask you to superintend these things in our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.